This is FBG Jen. And FBG Kristen. And I'm FBG Margot, host and producer. You're listening to the podcast that will help you keep a lid on the junk in the trunk and inspire you to live a happy and confident life. Each episode, we chat with motivational experts and celebs and share our own candid adventures in being healthy. If you're looking for a podcast that's equal parts hilarious and enlightening, well then welcome to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. Ever wonder why some people can seem to eat well and work out regularly almost effortlessly? Do these people have more willpower? Are they born that way? Are they special? Well, we know how they did it. And it does have something to do with willpower, but not in the way that you think. So get the scoop at fitbottomgirls.com forward slash coaching. Welcome back to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. This is FBG Margot, And on the line today, we have FBG Jen. Hello. And we have FBG Kristen. Hey, hey. And hey, hey, guys, we have a superstar today. Her name is Janine Roth, and she is talking about her book, This Messy, Magnificent Life. Jen and I were on the call for this interview, and I absolutely loved listening to Janine. How about you, Jen? Oh, yeah. She's super, superstar. Like, she was on, when we first started putting the podcast together, she was one of the people that I was like, it would be so freaking cool if we had her on, because she was like... She's on Oprah, like mm-hmm. very early in the day, talking about women and weight and spirituality and stuff. And I read her book, Women, Food, and God, like before FBG started. And it was one of those books that just freaking changed my life. It was like someone had reached into my soul and was like, oh, so all those food anxieties and body anxieties and all that weight anxieties, all that stuff you're having is actually um, – you know, it is dieting and everything, but it's also a bit of a, a spiritual calling that yourself needs more freaking love. And I remember just reading that and being like, whoa. Yeah, that's deep. Okay. Yeah, it was like mind blowing. Um, it was kind of like if you read like an Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle book for the first time, you're like, oh my gosh, I see the world in an entirely different way. So that was that book for me. And that was um, one of my first introductions to Janine Roth. And I've just, yeah, really, really loved her work. And we got to talk to her I mean she's friends with like Anne Lamott's like her best friend like it's just crazy but her new book this messy magnificent life was really beautiful and not just about weight it was about a lot of different things yeah it's about this messy magnificent life like life isn't easy all the time life gets messy and how do you get through it and learn from it and that's a big thing for her and the biggest thing I got out of this is that um, she's a big believer and taking complaining out of your life and challenging yourself. Uh, One of her challenges is to not complain for 30 days, even just to yourself, (laughs) you know, even it's just like, a. and that, let me tell you guys, that's hard because we all, oh my God, if you're an impatient person like I am and a New Yorker, like I, I, you know, that's what we're bred to do. It's really hard to not complain. But when you really start to try to not do that, you hear it more around you and you realize like yeah. it's not always helpful to hear people complain and bellyache. I hate to say it. Those of you like to do that. It's draining for some of us. Yeah. It yeah, is. It is. yeah. You do become super hyper aware of it. Yeah. And then I feel like you have to almost like throw up like an, a barrier around yourself. Like, yeah, I'm in a no complain bubble. <laughs> but then you're complaining about the complaining and you're like, Oh man. Oh man. Right. Well, it's also, so what do you guys do when you're in, when you're in that sort of a situation, because like, I know there are times when I try to find like 
something else to to say, like to change the topic, to change the direction. And I will tell you, it does not often work. No, I, I was I was I'm sorry I, to interrupt. Uh, I, I have a I had a story for you guys and it was at Thanksgiving and we have Friendsgiving and we have a friend that's sort of on the fringe of the group that's not always there. And one thing we've all discovered is that she just complains a lot and it gets really tiresome because she's complaining about like her life is good in so many ways and she actually went on a diatribe at Thanksgiving about having to carry a cell phone everywhere like I had to get one and what was wrong with uh, pay phones and why do we have to always have and just going on and on and on and then somebody finally just said what is more convenient than a cell phone like do you want to go anywhere near a pay phone if you think about it he said I'd rather go to a peep show than a pay phone <laughs> you know what I mean just like it's just like just the way she looked at it was this huge inconvenience and everyone else is like it's the biggest convenience in the world like what are you even talking about but yeah, yeah. anyway go ahead Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, I don't even know what I was going to say. I'm so sorry. <laughs> to be honest, well, that's okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't think. Um, but I think it's hard because it's like if you have someone who's, you know, close to you, you want to, you want to like let, you want that vent. Sure. You know, or allow sure. people to vent and let things get off their chest. But you also just don't want to get in like the cycle or the suck of it because it does feel like, you know, that's like a way to commiserate basically or a way to bond. Mm -hmm. So I complain about something, you complain about something that all of a sudden all we're doing is complaining about something. And it's funny because actually it's really easy to complain about your kids. And I've also noticed, easy to like, complain about other people's kids. That's true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but I've noticed like if you get in a group with, with, you know, mom, sometimes it can very easily just be like a complaint fest around, 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 around. And then I think it's really important to kind of like monitor like the situation and be like, wait, is this making me feel better about like, is it really getting it off my chest or am I just kind of like stewing in something? You know, is there another way that I could see this or is there another way we could talk about this or is there just something better for us to talk about? I think that's kind of the the question and to Kristen's point where you're, you know, where someone is complaining and I don't know if it's always helpful to be like, but maybe there's a different way to see it because that can also be kind of annoying. Um, sure, for <laughs> but, sure. But be like, well, let's talk about something else. Like, yeah, yeah. How, how about I don't even know what. How about those bears? How yeah. was the game last <laughs> like, weekend? I'm thinking of planes, trains, and automobiles. But uh, yeah, I, I I wonder. Yeah, what she wants you to do is basically look at the situation. Is this worth being upset about? Is there something I can do about it? Is there nothing I can do about it? Okay, then how can I look at it? And the, those kind of tips and tricks. And when you have less to complain about, you have less to be aggravated about, and less aggravation in your life is very pleasant, and it makes you more oh pleasant God. around other people too. Yeah, it makes you healthier. Yes, I mean, you just feel better. When you feel better, you're healthier. Yeah. Like, yeah. Simple. Less complaining. I mean, there's lots of like really big things to complain about. So why complain about the little ones? Right. That's that's her whole point. And she has all kinds of advice like that in this interview. And we, we just love talking to her. So you guys are super lucky. We're so glad we'd be able to give this to you. And uh, wherever you get your podcasts, if you could leave us a review, that would be amazing, especially in iTunes, because the way they list things is like how many reviews you get, how many stars and stuff like that. So if you have the time, that'd be awesome. And we also have stickers and we've been sending these stickers around the world. You guys are so cool. So if you want a Fit Bomb Girl sticker, just send us an email at podcast at fitbottomgirls.com and follow us on social media at Fit Bottom Girl. That's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, 
believe me, Pinterest, you guys will find us. And gang, I say let's get going with Janine Roth, This Messy, Magnificent Life. In as little as 30 minutes, you can boost your willpower and find your true inner motivation to live a healthy life. Come join the Fit Bottom Revolution at fitbottomgirls.com forward slash coaching and sign up for our online class, How to Amplify Your Willpower to Make Healthy Change. It's only $8 and you can save 20% when you use the code FBGPODCAST. So sign up at fitbottomgirls.com forward slash coaching today. Janine Roth's pioneering books were among the first to link compulsive eating and perpetual dieting with deeply personal and spiritual issues that go far beyond food, weight, and body image. Rather than pushing away the crazy things we do, Janine's work proceeds with the conviction that our actions and beliefs make exquisite sense and that the way to transform our relationship with food, our body, and so much more in our life is to be open, curious, and kind with others instead of being punishing, impatient, and harsh. She's here today to talk about her book, This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide to Mind, Body, and Soul. Welcome to the show, Janine. Yes, hello. Hi, thanks for being on the show today. This is FBG Margot, and on the line today, we have FBG Jen. Hello. So I'm going to ask the first question. You write about the open secret to permanent weight loss, what is it and why do you call it an open secret and does it really lead to permanent weight loss? Well, whether it leads to permanent weight loss depends on the person, of course, uh, as everything does, because nobody else is responsible for um, your well-being really than you. So whether anything is permanent depends on what you yourself do whether you put it into action, whether you change the things that you do every day, whether you develop some new practices. What the permanent weight loss is about is that for many, many, many people who struggle with food and eating and weight and shame about the size of their bodies, many people just want to get rid of it. They just want to get rid of the problem. They want it to go away. They want to fix it. They believe, as I did, because I struggled for many years with my weight, they believe, as I did, that if only I could lose weight, then everything that was wrong would be right. What I didn't ever realize until I did start realizing it was that there were ways that my weight actually served me. I don't really know how to say it any other way, that my weight spoke for me, that there was a lack of acknowledgement about the fact that I was using food and my weight to benefit me. For instance, in my own life, it was when I felt uh, fat, then I also felt so unattractive. I didn't feel like other people were attracted to me. I didn't throw myself at every unavailable man who came in my direction, and I had much more energy to focus on my work. So I allowed my weight to say no for me, to speak for me in a way that I felt like I couldn't speak for myself. Before I lost weight, I 
started realizing that I just sat down with myself because I really believe that what we do, we do for good reasons. Um, if you think that you're crazy, that your weight, that what you do with food is insane, I really urge people to look again and to see how they're trying to get through to themselves with what they're doing with food. It's, it's as if we're speaking to ourselves in a language that we don't understand. So if I didn't understand French and let's say my weight and my body and my whole relationship with food was speaking in French, it would mean I would need to take the time to understand the language. And I think that's people don't do that enough with themselves and their bodies and their weight. They just fix it, get rid of it, let me get on and move on. So I have personally followed your work for like ever. And um, your book, Women, Food, and God, for a lot of women, I mean, it spoke to me and it was kind of, it was like a fresh breath of air. It's like receiving oxygen for the first time after kind of being trapped by dieting in a lot of different ways and kind of feeling trapped in my body. And I guess I'm curious because I've, you know, we got a copy of This Messy, Magnificent Life, which I love. Like I I tried to savor it, but I kind of devoured it. So I feel like I have to go back and like savor it more Um, because it's really beautiful, beautifully written. And there's so many just deep personal stories there. But I'm wondering, you know, as as you've done this book, do you almost consider your work to be a little bit less weight focused, weight loss focused and much broader, like almost that is like, just like you were talking about, that's almost like a symptom of a way that your body's trying to get your attention. Yeah. Uh, you know, my teaching work and speaking work, I teach retreats twice a year. I do workshops a couple of times a year. I work with my retreat students a couple of times a month. Those are almost exclusively about the relationship with food because I am still passionate and compelled by the relationship with food because it is such an amazing doorway into our inner beings. Anything would be a great doorway. Our relationship to alcohol, to sex, to work, to uh, our significant others, to our kids, to the internet, to our digital devices. I mean, how we do anything is how we do everything. So how you eat is how you live. And because I am so passionate about looking deeply in what are my core beliefs, what about the people I work with, my students, their core beliefs, about being alive, that's what it really gets down to, that express themselves through their relationships with food. And so I'm still passionate about the core at, at you know, the, the very bottom of what leads to having an entangled or a challenged relationship with food. I'm forevermore on fire about that because that was my way in. Am I also interested, and in this book I did, two-thirds of the book has some of food in it. A third of it is all about food. Two-thirds of the book is about the core beliefs that I'm talking about that led me to food and that I see in my students that lead them to food. For instance, life is really hard. I'm a failure. I'm doomed. I'm not worth it. Everybody else has more than I have. There's this constant feeling of being Sisyphus, 
just pushing that boulder up the mountain, trying, 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 because of what we believe is true about ourselves and being alive. And also having this, uh, what I call the GPS from the twilight zone or the crazy ant in the attic on our backs, constantly censoring and shaming and judging and punishing and depriving ourselves. That's a big part of all of our suffering here. And I talk about how to disengage from that. So I'm still talking about food. And in this book, I'm also widening out into everyday challenges that people have who don't actually have challenges with food. For people who have interviewed me uh, and my friends as well who don't have food challenges, they tell me this is their very favorite book of mine uh, because somehow they feel like they can relate more to what I'm saying. I feel like, well, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that you love it. And as far as I'm concerned, everybody's got to stick with food because everybody eats. And uh, we're not as interested in our relationships with food as we could be. So that was a long-winded answer to your question. And the answer was yes and no. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) I'm loving the book too. And thank you so much for sending it over. And you, you write that attention is everything. And without it, all all else is just a temporary fix and no long-lasting change is possible. Can you dive into that a little bit, please? Yes, sure. I am all about attention these days, all about it, even more so than when I finished the book. And this is why, because we unwittingly, without realizing it, pay attention to what's wrong, to what's not happening, to what we don't have enough of, to what happened to us as kids, to being rejected a couple of weeks ago, to being abandoned 15 years ago, to our first attempts to do whatever. And we stay there. We keep inscribing, according to the neuroscientists, inscribing deeper and deeper and deeper grooves into our brain deeper grooves of negativity and failure and doom and worthlessness because we keep telling ourselves the same stories and paying attention to them. What I didn't realize for so long, and this is somebody who's been, I've been meditating for 40 years and I've been in almost as many years of therapy. It took me until recently, believe it or not, the last couple of years to realize that It really was all about attention, not just when I was on the meditation cushion, not just when I was sitting and eating a meal, because I really, of course, urge people because I have a set of seven eating guidelines. And one of them is eat without distractions, which is increasingly more and more difficult to do with the proliferation of digital devices. We just don't give ourselves any time alone whatsoever. What I didn't realize was that what you pay attention to determines how you feel about yourself, in and about yourself. So if I wake up in the morning and my first morning thoughts, I call them morning thoughts, and I've I've really caught on to myself now, so I do not let myself do this. My first morning thoughts used to be, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, 
I have so much to do. I didn't finish it all yesterday. Oh no, I made this arrangement. I really don't want to do that. There, there was a pile up of things that were wrong. And what I didn't realize was that in switching my attention, and this has to be done proactively, it has to be done consciously. In switching my attention to what isn't wrong, let's just a very simple practice, that's a, that's a touchstone at the back of this messy, magnificent life, to ask yourself what isn't wrong uh, a couple of times a day for two minutes a day, so everybody has six minutes to spare. What isn't wrong? And then I start realizing, oh, I woke up. I didn't die in the night. Now I know I'm laughing, but it's, it's actually not funny. But and it's uh, obvious. I'm I'm alive. I'm breathing. I have a roof over my head. I have arms. I have legs. I have breath. I am safe. I can walk. There, there's love in my life. There's food in my refrigerator. I have my favorite teacup. There's and then it just it just spills out into more and more and more and you know the better it gets the better it gets when you start focusing on what's positive and this is not Pollyanna thinking this is not well okay I'll just say affirmations my life is getting better and better every day I'm a success par excellence no this is actually being realistic this is this is tempering the brain's bias to go into negativity and actually, you know, it's like if there were two scales and one scale was weighted far in the direction of negativity, this is just evening out the balance because in any given moment, there's so much that's not wrong, then that is wrong. And, you know, what I'll often say to people is, this is a tributary, this is a little corollary of what's not wrong. But I can, say to, I can say to my retreat group at any given moment, tell me a problem you have right now, right now, in this moment, not one you had yesterday, not that you have to go back into the past to dredge up, not even from 15 minutes ago, not that you're anxious about having in the future, right now. And what people see is in this moment, there is no problem. In, and we are so beset with our problems. We might have a report that's due. Our child might be sick. We might be sick. Our knees might ache. Our back might ache. Uh, we might be really, really, really tired. But those aren't problems. They are just, oh, I'm tired. Or my knee aches. Or my back aches, or my child is sick. Once you cut away the incredible embroidery of negativity and story that we schlep around with us every day, life becomes so much simpler and brighter. So I think this I think this leads into that leads well into the, my next question, which was you talk a lot about having a conversation with Eckhart Tolle in your book. And I just found that so fascinating. Um, 
just on so many levels. I'm like, oh my gosh, he actually is like that all the time. I, I call him, um, my friend and I call him the our spiritual like pocket gnome because he kind of yeah. looks like a little gnome, you know, but he's like, so I don't know, you just want to take him everywhere. And it seems like that was kind of the case. When it comes to this, you're talking about the stories that we have about ourselves and the morning thoughts seem like a really good way and to kind of rewire some of that negativity. Are there any other ways that we can really start to, I guess, even become aware of the stories that we have consciously and then continue to shift them to something that is, I guess, more true or more of what we want to be true? Yeah. Um, One thing is becoming aware, and I write about this in the chapter in which I speak about meeting Eckhart Tolle and having a conversation with him. I, I talk about not complaining. Complaining is something that most of us do in lieu of having conversations. We feel that complaining is having a conversation. Let me tell you about my woes, what went wrong, what happened to me, what didn't happen to me that I wished happened to me, what happened to me that I didn't want to have happened to me, and the other person does the same thing. And that's what we usually call conversations. Is, is is just mucking around. This is, a, in many ways, you're right. It's an extension of our previous question. We muck around in negativity. We're basically complaining about something that happened already, that there's nothing to do anything about, and yet we complain about it. And that just gets us deeper and deeper, deeper into the muck. You know, when I stopped complaining, which I did write about in this messy, magnificent life, when I first started it, and now I've been doing it for a couple of years, but for the first two weeks I did it, it was so shocking to my own system and to my husband's system that he thought I had the flu. Because instead (laughs) of getting in the car and saying what I didn't like, about where we had just been, I caught myself and I stopped. And if I, if I, all I had was a complaint, then I just didn't say anything. I just looked outside the window. When I've talked to couples about this, about not complaining, at least three different couples have said to me, I, I don't think we'd have anything to talk about if we didn't complain. Mm. But what happens is that you then begin seeing negativity everywhere, then life becomes exhausting because you're always fighting against what already happened, that there's nothing to do about. And there's nothing more useless to do with your mind than to fight about something that already happened that you have absolutely no control over. So another thing would be to stop complaining. Now, if you, if you can't take that on, you know, it's the not complaining challenge. If you can't take that on, take that on for one day. I, t- I decided to take it on pretty much for my lifetime because I was done with mucking around and wallowing in negativity. I realized that, that if you gave me lemonade, I would give you back lemons. <laughs> I was so good at turning 
what was here to what was wrong, what was fine to what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I realized complaining was part of that. And I see that with my students all the time. Quick follow-up, did you have that mentally as well? Did you start becoming aware of the, even if you weren't saying it, just the mental complaints? Oh, yes. So how do yes. you, <laughs> you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm complaining again. Like, shift to some, then I was just awareness, I assume? Shift back yes. to awareness? I'm, I'm like, you know, you become aware that almost every other thought is a complaint against the way it is. It shouldn't be this way. You know, for instance, uh, somebody who works for me just overlooked something really big that um, I just realized. And the uh, my response at first was, oh, my God, who does that? How could she? And then I realized very, very quickly, well, who does that? She did. How could she? I don't know. She did. Now what? Now what do I do? Does it, it's helpful for me to say something so that it doesn't happen again. So alert, so that it doesn't happen again. But to complain about it, to just sound off about it, to react about it, doesn't help her and it doesn't help me. It's putting negativity out there over and over again. Are you from New York? Yes. So am I. I think it's like a thing we have. It's something. It's, like, it's something that we do, and I get. Very, I find it very tiresome. The complaining. Yes. Believe me, it's not just from New York. Right. Um, you know, I live in California now, and if I listen carefully to most conversations, they are basically an exchange of complaints. <laughs> so, okay, so then what do you do if someone around you won't stop complaining? You don't engage. Okay, okay. Because then it gets fine, they have nothing to feed off of, right? That's yeah? right. Yeah, okay. Just, you know, it's like having a rope and having a tug of war. If one person is pulling, but the other person doesn't, there's no war. There's no friction. You could say something simple like, oh, that sounds hard. Yeah, sounds like that must be hard. But then nothing else. Nothing else. And what happens is that other people quickly realize there's no traction here. Right. And the conversation changes. So what are And we're all better off for it. Too. Yeah, yeah, totally. The less negativity we put out there, you know, and I'm not saying that, and this is really important to say, that doesn't mean that we don't take action to change a situation. We absolutely do. We're not pushovers. We don't let people roll over us. That's not the other option here. You know, when people first used to read about my work with food, they felt that because I was talking about not shaming, depriving, punishing, and being afraid of oneself, I meant, oh, go binge. Because the second you let loose on the punishment, then people flip to the other side and think, oh, that means, you know, I can just binge. No, I wasn't saying that. We tend to see things in black and white. So I was, I was then saying to listen to your body. I'm still saying that, of course, to listen to your body to hear what it's saying, to 
eat when you're hungry, to stop when you've had enough, and to eat what makes you thrive, to be, to eat what's in alignment with your own energy, what helps you feel more alive, not less alive. On the complaining part, I'm not talking about not taking action to change a situation. Yes, absolutely. Take action to change a situation. You know, if there is, if I'm staying in a hotel and it smells like mold or there are cockroaches on the floor, I mean, these are extreme examples, I will go down and talk to them and say, you know, there are bugs in my room and I don't want to sleep in this room. That's a statement. The complaint is, how could there be? How could you? Why did you? What kind of place is this? You know, there's reactivity. And the more we do that, the more, the stronger our egos feel, the more we feel like they're our enemy. It's us and them. We feel all puffed out. We're right. They're wrong. That might make up for another time in the day where we didn't feel so good, where we felt like we weren't right, so to speak. But that doesn't lead anywhere. It just puts more venom out in the atmosphere that's unnecessary. And it doesn't lead to change. What I'm interested in, what leads to change? What, what other things can lead to change, you know, as well as, you know, giving up complaining and reframing how you look at things? Are there other uh, things you do? Well, those are, yes, there are other things. But I want to say that if anybody listening to this takes on one of those, their lives will change. Mm. So, you know, it, this, it's important to see because most people don't do anything. You know, most people, I used to say in my workshop, sometimes I still do, everyone wants to lose weight, but no one wants to change. And what I meant was once you hear about what you can do, to be in better alignment, I call it, balance with your body and the food you're eating, then the next step is, do you do it? Because the, the, um, you know, the force of inertia and entropy of just sort of like, I don't really feel like doing anything. I'll just be the same. It's such a strong force. So, um, what's not wrong and not complaining, either of those things, if you took them on as practices, would change your life. If you really took them on, change your life. Because what would happen with the what's not wrong practice, what's not wrong right now, is that, and this is what happens with my retreat students and with myself, is that I start looking for the good. I don't just say in this moment, well, there's a roof over my head and there's, you know, a floor beneath my feet and there's gravity and breath and water. And then I start looking, oh, I, I start noticing what's good around me. And that brightens my spirit and affects everybody who I come into contact with. Another thing would be to take a couple of minutes and to sense your arms and your legs. And by that, I mean, come back to your body. Most of us live in our heads. You know, that line that I quote a lot from James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Most of us do. We don't live inside these arms and legs. We're missing the whole show because 
unless we're actually here, unless we're aware of what we're looking at, not just seeing what we're listening to, not just hearing, I mean, really become awake and alive, we miss it. That's what happens with food a lot of the time. People say, I can't wait to eat, I can't wait to eat, I can't wait to eat. And then they sit down to eat and they're on their email immediately or Instagram or Facebook, or they're involved in a conversation. They're eating, they're not paying attention to the food. The food is gone and they feel like they've missed their meal. They weren't there. Because when you're not there, when your attention and when your awareness, your presence is not there and how it gets there is by listening to your body, by just coming back into this body, then you pretty much miss your life. You get to the end of your life and you feel like you've missed it because you spent all that time in your head and now your body is going away and where were you this whole time? So you can just start right now. You just feel your feet on the floor, your butt in the chair, you look around the room, you orient yourself, you see the lights. You know, the Tibetan Buddhists have a saying, be like a child, astonished at everything. You see something you've looked at maybe for 10,000 times and you see it as if for the first time and you take it in, you let yourself be affected instead of being in a daze. Hmm. I love that. My, um, my four-year-old, like being around kids is, is like you said, is so great about that. Cause we'll go outside and she'll be like, Oh mom, the sun, this, that, da, da, da. and I'm like, Oh, that is kind of amazing right there. Thank you. <laughs> so I know we're, I know we're running short on time. I've got two really awesome questions I want to ask you. Um, and one is another, is another quote that's from the book that we do a lot of work on, you know, anti-dieting and non-dieting and kind of like taking your power back. And this is the quote that really struck me. Um, imagine what you could do if you stopped turning your energy against yourself and use it instead to question what you've been hypnotized into believing about the size of your body and to speak up for what matters most to you. Yeah. Yeah, you want to expand on that a little bit for people that maybe haven't been accustomed to that kind of, I mean, basically feminist notion that we're all kind of holding ourselves back by being obsessed with something that doesn't actually matter as much as it should. No, because nobody is really looking and nobody's inside your body except for you. You're there. And the amount of judgment that we heap on it makes us feel smaller and smaller. There is another chapter in the book about this sensor or crazy ant in the attic or GPS from the twilight zone. That's another practice is to disengage from that. And that takes a little, you know, too many more steps than we have time for. But it's crucial that people understand that most all of us are absolutely merged with that voice. We're merged with it. We think it's our voice. So that voice that says, oh, look at your thighs, that's disgusting, is actually not our voice. It's the sensor's voice. It's the judge's voice. It's the GPS from the twilight zone. Your thighs to your thighs. And if your thighs feel uncomfortable to you because it's not easy to walk around, because you can't fit in a chair because you want to run and they're holding you back, so to speak, because you want to move in a much more effortless way. Well, there are steps to take, but you don't take them because you feel ashamed. You, because when you feel ashamed, any 
any movements that you make to change are just really to avoid the shame and they won't last for a long time. I see this, you know, because I've been teaching workshops for so many years, I have, I've seen many people over and over again who first came to me in the 90s or the late 80s and would say things to me like, well, your approach is so kind, but I, I can't really follow it because I'm afraid I'm going to gain so much weight. So let me go on a diet first and then I can do that. And then I see these same people 10 years later, having been on a diet 10, 15, 20 pounds more than they were when I first saw them a while back with the same issue, not knowing how to be kind to yourself. It's, it's the, the self-acceptance and boundaries, which is sort of what your question is about, are both those things are crucial. And boundaries in particular, I talk about that in the chapter called The Red String Project, that no is a complete sentence, and so is I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I got teary-eyed in the um, the red string. That's a, that's a really mm -hmm. part of the book. Okay, Margo, can I ask one last question, and then I'll do, have you do last question, last question? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Okay, so I might have said this that I I like I really like the title of the book. So I'm I'm curious, and I like how it really taps into the fluid nature of both our lives and just our emotions. Like we don't live in this constant state of bliss, although that's kind of what we all seem to be chasing after all the time. So to kind of have some, I guess, reality about you know you're gonna have ups and downs, and that's cool. That's what life's about. So I'm curious. What's both messy and magnificent in your life? And then how do you find the magnificence in the mess? Right. Well, my mind is messy and magnificent. That's what I would say. I would say that catching my mind as it loves attaching and uh, being fond of suffering and negativity from the years that I did that, it's a constant process of catching myself and switching, switching on the light. It's like when I meditate, uh, there's focus. I sit down, there's awareness, there's focus. And then my mind starts wandering, wandering, wandering. And then I become aware of my mind wandering. And then I switch. It's like putting on the light and I come back. And so that's what it feels like. I do with my mind just during the day, too. When I hear myself telling a story or about to complain or complaining in my mind, it's a constant process of rebalancing myself. And every time I do, it's back to the magnificence. And if it's not magnificent in that moment, there's a neutrality to it, a fineness to it. It's fine. So once again, this book is called This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide to Mind, Body, and Soul. Janine, where can people find you on the web and social media? They can find me on my website, janineroth.com, and that's with a G, G-E-N-E-E-N, roth.com. My website on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Janine Roth, on Instagram, Twitter, at Janine Roth like that. Just wherever people go for their <laughs> social media news, you can find me. And we have one more question for you. Yes. Super quick. Okay. We asked this of everyone that appears in the show. 
what was the last song you listened to before you did this podcast interview? I listened to Shallow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Did you watch the Oscars last night? I watched them. And so that was the last song I listened to. (laughs) That's a great answer. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to both of you. Love this show? Tell us why in a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read it on the air. Also, make sure you are a subscriber. If you want to reach out to say hi or have a question about a recent episode, yay, well, feel free to email us at podcast at fitboundgirls.com. And if this podcast jives perfectly with your brand, consider sponsoring the show. Get more info by emailing advertising at fitbottomgirls.com. Find all kinds of Fit Bottom goodness online and on social media at Fit Bottom Girls, Fit Bottom Mamas, Fit Bottom Eats, and Fit Bottom Zen. And if books and movies are your thing, check out the other podcast I co-host called Book vs. Movie, which you can find anywhere where you search for podcasts. Thanks for listening.